Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True and Beautiful. I am super excited today uh, to inv uh, invite a new voice uh, within our community. I recently came across his work and uh, I thought, man, how did it take me so long to find this guy? Um, he's putting great stuff into the world. Uh, his book, The Practice of Groundedness, is really uh, what I kind of dove headfirst into and really what we're going to be covering today. Uh, he's a friend of Steve Magnus, another voice here that's joined us at the podcast. And uh, so with that being said, Brad Stolberg from Asheville, North Carolina is joining us. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, Ashton, it's great to be here. Hey, man. Um, thank you for your time and your generosity uh, in sharing with us today. I know I kind of jumped over a little bit of a bio for you, but before we kind of get rolling today, when, when you introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin? I, I basically uh, say that I'm, I'm interested in sustainable excellence and mastery, and I define that as feeling good and doing good over the long haul. And I wear two hats. One is as a researcher and writer trying to uncover the science and the art of what makes for sustainable excellence. And then the other is as a practitioner. So working with clients as a coach to try to help them achieve this in, in their lives. Right on, right on. Sustain Sustainability has been a theme here for a long, long time. Uh, and I love this idea of playing the long game over the long haul, right? Not just were you successful for this month, but is this a rhythm, routine, momentum that you can build and enjoy? Um, so it sounds like you and I kind of are on the same page here. Um, the practice of groundedness. So I, every time we jump into a book, my first question is, is always, why this book and why now? Well, the, the answer to that question kind of gets back to that dichotomy of the two hats that I wear. So as a researcher and writer the trends were pretty unequivocal that more people were feeling burnt out and particularly people that were very conventionally successful were really struggling. They were struggling to be happy. They were struggling to be fulfilled. They were struggling to play the long game. And as a writer and a researcher, that fascinated me. So I started to dig deeper. And then as a Practitioner and in, in, in my personal life, I saw many of my coaching clients were also going through this period of malaise, of burnout, of just feeling like I'm pushing so hard and what's the point of all this? Like I've climbed the mountain and I still feel the same, if not worse. How did I get here? And um, in my own personal life, I experienced a, a really gnarly period of anxiety and depression that certainly wasn't directly related to my, my striving in my own life. Um, Mental illness is complex and, it, and it, it results from a host of factors, biological and environmental. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, that it at least played a part enough to have me step back and examine what I was doing. And um, for me, as a, as a writer and as a thinker, when I see something in the literature and in the research that is pretty glaring, and then out of the ivory tower and in the world, I'm seeing it in all these people I work with, and then I start to see, at least tangentially, parts of it in myself, um, Part of the, the gift of what I do is I get paid to be like, all right, I want to spend five years thinking about this and, and maybe a book will come out of it. Yeah, right on. It, which is kind of this whole uh, realization that you had, you bring in this co conversation about heroic individualism. Um, how, would you, how would you invite us to understand exactly what you're getting at when you say um, heroic individualism being probably the major cause of that chronic... 
man, I'm I'm never getting to this finish line. I'm never satisfied. I'm never content. I'm never um, at rest, aligned, like centered, uh, grounded. You know, that's where we're going. You know, so talk to me about heroic individualism. I define heroic individualism is an ongoing game of one-upsmanship against yourself and others where measurable achievement is the main arbiter of success and of value. And to your point, the finish line is always 10 yards down the road. So you think that you're going to get there and you think that if I just get this promotion or if I just get this many downloads for my podcast or if I just date that person or if I just finally have kids, then I'll be content. And of course, you do those things and maybe you're content for a couple hours or a couple days, but then you're kind of right back into striving. And um, it's just manifest in our culture across the board whether it's in people's personal lives or professional lives, you look around and you can't help but see this frenetic energy focused on the next thing, all around measurable achievement. And I wrote the book, uh, let's see, I don't know, five and a half years ago, maybe, no, maybe four, four, four to five and a half years ago, I was like actually writing the book. There's such a long lead time from mm-hmm. idea to writing to publication. And this was not even peak social media yet. And since I've written the book, what I've observed is like more and more, even our own identity and sense of being gets wrapped up in this, right? Because now like you can measure your quote unquote self based on how many followers you have on Instagram or Twitter, or how many people subscribe to your newsletter, on and on and on. And it's just, we didn't evolve for this. Yeah. 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 Emphasis on measuring. Um, and I think uh, we all you know, you, 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 you get some of those things that you measured for a lifetime. And then you start asking yourself, wait a minute, where's the meaning here? Like where, and you get, you get measurement, but you don't get meaning. And I think a lot of what you're inviting us to consider, to realize is with the conversation of, of, of groundedness and the steps towards groundedness is that, um, it's okay to measure like measurements. Okay. And you're actually not going to sacrifice you know, still pursuing things and, and growing and growing your capacity. But you've got to, uh, you, you kind of have to find some new language. You kind of have to find a new, it's almost like you're inviting us to a new way of being in the world uh, that isn't number numeric driven, uh, but it actually gets you back to some of those things that you can't put them on a scale and weigh them. You can't weigh joy. You can't weigh peace. You can't measure, I've got this much love. It just... It's either there or it's not, right? Yeah, and I love that you say um, a new language because when I set out to write this book, my primary goal was to provide language for something that a lot of people feel and intuit, but they they don't yet have the words for. And hopefully by giving them the words, they can wrestle with it and, and they can make the appropriate decisions in their own lives. So yes, I'm, I'm 100% there with you. I want to be really clear, this isn't about checking out of life and going to live in a monastery for 20 years. Some people do that and renounce all worldly pleasures, and that's fine. That's not my book. That's not my approach. This is about figuring out how to be present and fulfilled and find meaning in the process of striving to do good things, not based on the achievement of those good things. Whereas I feel like right now, so many people, the achievement is the primary. And then if they happen to feel good while doing it, that's a a nice to have. Whereas I'm trying to flip that script and say, hey, if you feel good while you're striving, 
then whether or not you get the measurable achievement, that's secondary. And it just turns out if you feel good for long enough, those achievements will take care of themselves because so much of excellence and so much of success is uh, not just a quality game, but also a quantity game. You got to put a lot out there. And if you're not having fun and you're not enjoying the work, well, then you're not going to have quantity because you're going to burn out. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, In your um, experience of coaching, I would assume high-level executives, athletes, top performers, fill in the blank, um, some signs that one is experiencing uh, or battling the heroic individualism. I think that the the shortest way to describe it is a sense of frantic and frenetic energy. So like you're kind of constantly being pushed and pulled this way and that, and you don't really have control over it. Generally, you're experiencing a fair amount of conventional success. So from the outside looking in, you're getting promoted, you're winning, um, you're achieving. But on the inside, you're increasingly exhausted or questioning what's the point of all this. Um, you find yourself addicted to working or to pushing forward. And by addicted, I mean you don't want to be doing it. Mm-hmm. But when you stop doing it, you feel really restless. This yeah. is so common. So it's the person that says, oh, I just want to like log off for a day and put away my phone and computer. And then an hour into doing that, they feel even worse. So then they go for their phone and computer. And then very much related to that is another telltale sign is you both dread like having to show up and do the thing. But if you don't, then you feel even worse. Um, so it's just like this feeling of stuckness in your situation. And it can be hard to talk about because, again, a lot of these people are like very successful. They're, they're writing books. They're publishing podcasts. They're vice presidents or C-level people at companies. They're athletes that are winning medals in the Olympics. Um, and you know, two people can, can win a gold medal and one person can have a wonderful experience of it and another person can have a terrible experience of it. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and I think the other little caveat here is this whole idea of the, the danger of relentless optimization, as you write in the book, um, that consistently optimizing everything, eventually this leads to a very chaotic and complicated life versus one, it, and this, you know, these are the words that I use in almost every podcast here, is like, you can either lead a life that's simple and quiet, or you can lead one that's chaotic and complicated. Um Chaotic and complicated ways of being, it's just going to keep things chaotic and complicated, but simple and quiet will allow you to find a life that is sustainable and grounded and aligned and simple and quiet. You also write about the hungry ghost. So I want to kind of talk about both of these topics here of relentless optimization, but also the, the bottomless stomach that is the, the hungry ghost that we got to be careful uh, of who we're feeding. All right. So where should we start? Let's start with relentless optimization. So relentless optimization, I think there's a couple problems with this, and, and you mentioned one of them. And the the one that you mentioned, the only additional um, light I'd shed there, or shine there, I should say, is life tends to complicate and complexify itself enough, yeah. and you don't have to add to that. <laughs> and if you're like so focused on optimizing, well, yeah, when you're single and healthy and everything's going well, you, you're great. But if someone in your family gets ill, or if you get ill, or if you have a romantic partner that suddenly you're living with, or for an optimizer, God forbid you have a kid or two kids, the more that you try to stay on that schedule of optimization, the more frantic and frenetic your life's going to be. And I think that's a big trap, is 
flexibility is really important and this culture of optimization doesn't lend itself to flexibility. And then um, the second issue is what is good for us in the short term tends not to be good for us in the long term. Hmm. So I'll use myself as an example. If I wanted to really make progress on the book project that I'm working on right now and be as optimized as possible, I would tell my wife and my two kids I'm gone for the next three weeks. I would crush espresso and Red Bulls and I'd probably work 18 hours a day. I wouldn't shower. I wouldn't brush my teeth. Maybe I'd exercise, but only for like 20 minutes when I get stuck. And I'll tell you what, Ashton, at the end of those three weeks, I'd probably produce more work than I've produced in the last, I don't know, six months. That works for three weeks. Doesn't work for three months. Doesn't work for three years. Certainly doesn't work for three decades. So the focus on optimization, it tends to trap people in short-term thinking, and they don't realize that it's not good for the long-term. And particularly, it's it's a principle of groundedness is community. Community is not efficient. It takes time to build relationships and build friendships. And you don't see the results of those right away. So what ends up happening is we become like these efficiency robots. Mm-hmm. And in the short term, we're crushing it. But then when you get a cancer diagnosis or um, someone in your family dies, like you don't have a community to support you because you were too busy optimizing. So that's the first trap. And um, then the second trap around uh, optimization is, as you mentioned, and, and I kind of alluded to, is just like this notion that like it just makes things so complicated and complex. Yeah, for sure. It absolutely does. And I think that um, it, it's that short-term quick fix. It's kind of the sugar high. Th- this leads into that Eastern psychology idea of the hungry ghost, right? The bottomless stomach. Um, hold my hand there. Help, help me break that down a little bit because I think there's there's a deep, deep well of wisdom there just to have that aha of like, oh my gosh, I am feeding something that has a bottomless stomach. Be careful, proceed with caution, and those types of things via chaos and complication in our lives. Right, and and, and I'm glad that you mentioned that um, the hungry ghost again, because I, I was going to gloss over it, and, and let's give it a, a minute here. So in, in ancient Eastern psychology, there's something called the hungry ghost syndrome. And the hungry ghost is a ghost that has an extremely long gullet of a neck and a big bloated stomach. And the hungry ghost just keeps stuffing things into this gullet of a neck and it goes into his stomach, but he doesn't digest any of it. Hmm. And the stomach just expands and expands and expands. And even though he's never full, he's never satiated, he keeps on eating. And this craving for more, more, more just increasingly makes him more bloated, more miserable, more sick. And they use this as a metaphor for what I guess back then they might call heroic individualism, like this need for just more, 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 even when we're at the point of diminishing, if not negative, marginal returns. Yep. Um, I, I love that. And I think that, uh, you know, it's kind of like the two wolves that you can feed, right? Um, yeah, it's a great parable. And it's also really good because it can be, it can be age appropriate. So um, we, have a, we have two kids, but our oldest is almost five. And he's at a stage where he just wants surprises every day. Can I have another surprise? Can I have another surprise? And we, we talk about like not becoming a hungry ghost um, and how if you just like keep wanting these surprises, you're going to be a hungry ghost. And, and there's something about that imagery that like even a five-year-old gets. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, so here's here's our problem, right? Restlessness, feeling rushed, low-level angst. 
we're scattered, exhausted, burnout, we feel empty, we keep chasing the next thing, enter the conversation and the practice of groundedness. Now, this kind of hits you like a ton of bricks, and I'm, I'm only regurgitating what you put in the book, but you're on a walk in the redwoods with a friend, and all of a sudden you have the great epiphany, the aha of like, oh, the limbs are swaying to and fro, there's some chaos up there, but down here, down here at the, at the base level, at the grounded root level, it's peaceful, it's calm. So talk to me about that aha moment as we kind of start jumping into the, this idea of the practice of groundedness. Well, I knew I wanted to write this book prior to that. And I was in search of the metaphor that would make this immediately clear to readers. And um, as you mentioned, I'm on this hike in a redwood forest in Northern California, and it's a windy day, and these massive trees are just swaying to and fro. And um, the only thing that's holding them to the ground is their root system. But we don't see their roots. No one looks at a big, gigantic redwood and, and says, like, oh, look at those Look at those roots. All we see is what's above, what's above ground. And um, if we're going to exist in this modern world with the, the winds that blow us this way and that, well, our only hope of being able to stand strong is to cultivate really strong roots, the things that are the most important things to hold us up and nourish us, but that people don't often see. And um, the aha moment was like, oh, grounded. Like That's the word I should use in this metaphor of a tree I had a similar experience a couple months later at the base of a mountain. Same thing, right? Like mountains, everyone looks up at their beautiful peaks, but a mountain's peak is only as strong as its base. And I think that we've spent so much time focused on the bright and shiny objects, um, on the overstory of the tree, on the peak of the mountain, that, that we've neglected the roots in the base. Yep, the overstory. You, uh, one of the great uh, mystics you, you quote in the book, Meister Eckhart, um, I loved, I'd never heard this before, this, the deeper and lower the ground, the higher and more immeasurable is the elevation and height. Um, and you kind of had a lot of quotes as you start breaking down this whole idea of there's actually, there's actually something that allows you to soar in life uh, as you're grounded. It's like this great both and, right? It's like you've, we think it's all about soaring and flapping your wings, but right, sustainability uh, renewal, joy, peace. These things are the topics that we're actually talking about when we talk about being grounded. Yeah, you couldn't have, I mean, you couldn't have said it better because you quoted, I was going to give you credit, but I guess it's Meister Ecker. A few people <laughs> say it better than him. Um, but that's it. I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. It's this different way of thinking where it's both and, right? Again, it's not renouncing striving, but it's striving from a place of being grounded. Yeah, yeah. Um, I keep finding, I was so glad to find this formula because I'd heard it somewhere, but I, I was like, where is it? I've even shared it on here. And it was that, you know, that happiness equals reality minus expectations. Um, break that down for us because I feel like I'm going like four months of trying to break that down here within our community. And I think you may have some beautiful insight into... Uh, we've got reality, then we've got our expectations, and navigating those uh, through the topic of groundedness. Right. So if your expectations are way higher than your reality, you're just not going to be happy. Um, and, and, and that's like the, the simplicity of this, of this very elegant equation. Now, oftentimes what people will say is like, does this mean that I should go through life like an Eeyore or a Debbie Downer or only expect the worst? Yeah. And my answer is no. I mean, I don't think that that's a good way to live. 
I think what it means is that you want your expectations to be accurate. And we live in a society that's full of positive thinking and rose tinted glasses and everything is hunky dory always. And if it's not, go buy something to make yourself feel better. And as a result, it creates these false expectations for what being a human should feel like. And in the book, I argue that we've got to accept that being a human means pain and failure and loss. At the same time, it means joy and goodness and winning and victory and great highs. And we have to learn to accept all of it and in a way to expect all of it so that when we're faced with these things, our expectations are out of whack with what's happening. And therefore, as a result, if, if we don't feel happy all the time, we at the very least are equipped to handle the situation. Yep, yep. And you, I think you kind of invite the reader to um, consider like that idea of like set point theory, you know, like theory of mm-hmm. happiness that like once I check that box, then I'm home free. And we just keep, we achieve something, but that satisfaction only rises for a bit. I even think, I'm not sure how you totally say his name, Tal Ben Shahar about that, the arrival fallacy. I think that was in there too. Um you got to be careful that you're not just chasing another high. Um, and I think the word you and I just keep coming back to here is sustainability, right? Like just this, this the wellspring that is already within you that's sustainable versus always going after the next thing that's, right. a, that's outside of you. It's an inside job. Once you find it here, you don't have to go chase it out there as hard. Right, and, and part and parcel of this kind of acceptance in, in seeing reality for what it is, is is learning to be really present in your reality and not out ahead of yourself or not behind yourself. Because um, here, I'll, I'll make this really clear so we stop, stop talking in concepts. So 10 years ago, if you would have said, Brad, you make a living writing books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies you get to talk to really interesting people like Ashton about these books and you can be pretty choosy with the coaching practice. And you also have pretty good autonomy, both financially and then of your time. I would have said, I am living the dream. Sign me up. (laughs) That's where I am right now. And you know what? There are days where I get caught up wanting more and not being happy and striving and striving without being grounded And it's always the same thing. It's when I'm thinking about doing the work or when I'm comparing myself to other people versus when I'm actually doing the work. When I'm having a conversation like this, I don't give a how many people download this and follow me on Instagram or listen. I am enjoying this conversation. But the minute that I'm not present and I'm thinking about the result or I'm thinking about the reception or I'm thinking about somebody else that sold a million books instead of my couple hundred thousands, that's when I want more. So this like acceptance and setting the right expectations really isn't about, again, to come back to what I said, being a Debbie Downer or having low expectations. It's just about appreciating where you were and where you've been and then being realistic yeah. um, and, and staying present in the process of striving instead of constantly thinking ahead of, uh, of, of yourself or thinking about that result. Yeah, 100%. Um, and the other thing I'll say is it's back to this both and. Of course, like, of course, I'm a better writer and thinker and coach when I'm not thinking ahead. Like, the best chance for me to go from X hundred thousand books to X million is to stop thinking about X million and just spend my time and energy actually doing good writing. Yeah. It's this huge paradox. Yeah, for sure. The other, and I don't think you've necessarily directly come out in the book and say this, 
But what this way of being does in the world is, is it brings intentionality and clarity to what matters to you. Uh, and so you can you kind of turn down the noise a bit on everything that you that we're told and sold that we need to go get or be or buy or chase after. And you get this, I'm gonna come back to simple and quiet again. You 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 gain clarity and intentionality to what matters to you. I think it was that Dark Horse project, right? That you wrote yep, about. Dark, the, the Dark Horse project. And then it's a big part of the the um the second half of the book, where after introducing these principles of groundedness, I, I basically try to take the reader through, all right, how do you make them your own and, and apply them in your own life? And um, such a big part of this is understanding what your core values are. Yep. So what are the attributes that you really aspire to? And then really getting clear on how you define those core values. What do they actually mean? And then breaking those down into daily practices. Yep. And then you can ask yourself, hey, is this project in alignment with my core values, or am I spending my time in alignment with my core values? And if the answer is no, then either you've got the wrong core values, or you should reevaluate how you're spending your time. Now, is this to say that everything's going to be in perfect alignment? No. Like we have to make a living, and there's hardly any job out there where at least a part of it isn't like kind of crappy. But if the whole thing is crappy, and especially if the whole thing is crappy, and you're doing it because you're chasing the next buck, that's when I think you ought to pause and, and really consider what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. It's um, this is a way of of being that awakens you to the reality that you're experiencing. I think half the people don't even realize their life is chaotic and complicated, right? Like until you start reading some of this, you're like, oh, I am a default mode. I do react to everything versus, as you call it, you know, like the promotion of wise action. Uh, I think those are just two two different being you know ways of being in the world it's very like old school zig ziglar a meaningful specific versus a wandering generality like it doesn't matter how you come at what we're talking about we're kind of talking about the same thing here uh and maybe some people just need to be invited into more wise action versus reaction in their lives for sure and this is as old as time i mean i write this at the beginning of the book like there's my my emphasis here is not a quick fix or a hack or a trend it's looking across ancient wisdom traditions and history, both East and West, and then cutting edge science and the actual when the rubber meets the road practice. Yeah. And these themes just come up across all three various domains, various disciplines, various time periods. So I, I think of it as like truth with a capital T. Like I can be pretty convinced that this approach works almost universally for, um, for us. And then, of course, the hard part, which is like the second half of the book, is, all right, we know this. How do we actually adopt this? And, and that's when you get from philosophy and language and giving things meaning through language to actual daily practice. Yeah. So I want to be more present. Well, what, what does that mean? And you get from presence to something like, I want to be deliberately there for the people and activities that matter most to me, to the people that matter most to me are Rachel, Bill, and Sarah, and the activities that matter most to me are writing and singing to, therefore, I will block out an hour and a half every day to write where I put my phone in another room. And every night at 7 p.m., my phone and my computer go in the glove compartment of my car in the freezing garage so I can be present for Bill, Sarah, and Jamie. Yeah. And um, that's the blocking and tackling. That's right. Yeah. And 
you can't have the blocking and tackling without the goal that defines it, the lofty goal, whether it's presence, acceptance, vulnerability, whatever it is. But then you don't get those things unless you're willing to do the blocking and tackling. Yep. Yep. Well said. It's a, uh, yeah. How did you get to lead the life you're leading? Gradually, you took some steps. Suddenly, you were experiencing it. Um, and uh, yeah, one of my mentors says uh, to those to, to that, and um, things happen very gradually and then they happen fast. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, if if rhythm is needed in your life, focus, intentionality, uh, renewal, joy again. Uh, I would invite you guys to consider the practice of groundedness. He goes through, and we won't do that. I don't want to give the book away, but there's six steps from here that you can take, um, and very necessary, I think. Uh, and it's a beautiful read to start your year. You know, it's a great book. Uh, that's why I wanted to have you on in January. Um, it's a beautiful piece of work, man. I'm super grateful for it, and I know that, that our listeners will enjoy it too. I've got a couple few questions before we go. Can I ask them to you? Yeah, of course. Uh, first one, do you, do you have any daily rituals that you adhere to? I do. Um, back to your, your simplicity, I'm, I'm a big fan of ritual because it, it helps take time from this linear amorphous thing and make it cyclical and, and more tangible, at least for me. Yeah. Um, so I make coffee every morning, and it has as much to do with the ritual of making the coffee and smelling it as it does with the caffeine. Yeah. Um, I engage in some kind of physical practice every day. Um, that can be anything from like a structured strength workout to a brisk walk, and that just depends on the day, depends on how much time I have, depends on how my body's feeling. And um, I have a weekly ritual, which is brand new and so far so good. Uh, I have my wife, Caitlin hide my phone and my computer on Saturday morning um, and then not give it back to me until Sunday morning. I spend a lot of time on the internet. It's a big part of my job as a writer in in the 21st century is to to be on the internet. Um, And I think it's important for me to have some constraints that really force me away. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Um, What's currently keeping you curious? I'm thinking a lot about identity over time. And um, this is the topic of my next book, which comes out uh, in September of this year. So it's, it's definitely on my mind. It's been on my mind. So this notion of, I'm sure your listeners will have heard this from you and from guests, like impermanence is a fact of life. Mm-hmm. Change is synonymous with life. There is no life without change. Yet we also aspire to have a strong and stable and enduring identity. So how do we think about identity when everything is changing always, including ourselves? Yep. Yep. That's beautiful. There's a, let me look, it's on my, where is it? Uh, I saw the book today, Cultivating Delight by Diane Ackerman. You ever heard of her? Um, I haven't. I'll have to check that out. Google a quote, Diane Ackerman, uh, Cultivating Delight. And I think it's, it's something along the lines of a caravan of selves. Um, I may even have mm, it. Ooh, I like that. Uh, am I allowed to? Am I allowed in real time to like click on something and read it to you? Uh, we're it's your podcast. Out. You can do whatever we're, you we're, want. We're going way off the weed out into the weeds here. It's uh, here. It is. Living things tend to change unrecognizably as they grow. Who would deduce the dragonfly from the larva, the iris from the bud, the lawyer from the infant, flora or fauna? We are all shapeshifters and magical reinventors. Life is a plural noun, a caravan of selves. There you go, brother. Um, Woo! I might actually talk to my editor about working <laughs> that into the book. Um, that is beautifully said. 
Um, and yeah, that is like, that's the, that's the topic of the next book. That's what's on my mind is, is exploring that and trying to help people have language to make sense of themselves in their worlds when everything is always changing yet as a species, we, we crave stability. That's right. I know, man. No, that one, I found that one last week and it hit me between the eyes. Um, last question. What advice would you give to your younger self? Right now, give me a minute to, to really ground myself. What advice would I give to my younger self? Probably that it's okay to be kind to yourself. Right on. Yeah, I grew up an athlete and I'm a dude. And um, I think <laughs> the combination of those two things led to a whole lot of very good and wise coaching on self-discipline. Yeah. It has undoubtedly been helpful, but there wasn't the balance of self-compassion. Yeah. And um, now I've come to think that your self-discipline is only as strong as your self-compassion mm, because um, life is hard yeah. and um, doing hard things is hard. And if we can't be kind to ourselves along the way, then it just kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Beautiful way to end. Um, well, Brad, super grateful for you and your energy and your work in the world. Guys, make sure you go get a copy of The Practice of Groundedness. Uh, I think you will find that um, Brad is one of us, or we're trying to be one of him, something like that. I don't know how it works, but uh, super grateful to join, to have you join us in our community. And uh, you got an open seat anytime you want to come back. Wow. Thank you so much, Ashton. Um, it's always delightful to me, a kindred spirit. Uh, so appreciate you. And I'll take you up on that. I'd love to come back in almost a year and talk the next car- book. Caravan of Selves. Let's go. Yeah, me and you are riding it and so is the audience. So um, it, it won't get old. <laughs> All right, brother. We'll chat soon. 